Yes, I'm here with my good friend Ryan, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about his story and some different topics around suicide and mental health, and I'm super excited about it. Um, so, Ryan, yes, uh, sir. who are you, what do you do, and could you tell us a little bit about your brother's story? Yeah, yeah. So, name's Ryan, uh, live in Wilmington, and um, yeah, so I, my role, I'm a children's pastor at Scottsdale Baptist Church, and I've had a wild journey with different jobs, but I've ultimately landed here, and I feel like I'm going to be in this job for a while. I do love it, love working with kids, and I get to basically teach kids about Jesus, and it's, it's a great joy. So that's who I live by the beach in Wilmington. We're in Wilmington, yes, North Carolina. Wilmington, North Carolina, <laughs> and uh, met my now wife here, so that's what kind of planted me here, and we love it. Even we're both big travelers, so even when we go off, we want this always to be our home base. We just we love it a lot. So yeah, it's the best. Yeah. Um, could you tell me a little bit about your brother Joe and his journey and what you've been through over the past your whole life, I guess? Yeah, really whole life. Yeah, so um, I have two much older brothers. That's a whole other story. People uh, think that my parents are my grandparents because I was a, a, an oops, for sure. Um, my parents were 42 and 45 when they had me. Um, so I have much older brothers, and my oldest brother, who would have been 50 this last year, which is wild to think about. Um, so he suffered with clinical depression, uh, social anxiety, bipolar disorder, probably a couple of other things too. Um, from the time he was really 18 years old is when it was like diagnosed. Um, and he struggled with it for years and years and years. And um, growing up, I grew up in a family that really didn't talk about it. We just kind of dealt with it. And um, my brother would never be able to really live, be able to live on his own for any length of time. And growing up, I just thought, cool, like I can have my brother around, like it's normal, but it wasn't normal at all. My other brother, who's two years younger than Joe, had already moved away uh, to the East Coast. You know, we were in California, had moved away, but my older brother just was always around. And I just have all these memories of like my mom crying in bed at night and like I would ask what's wrong and it would it would be when my brother was going through like a, a crisis period, which was seemed to be every other week. Um, so it really put a strain on my mom, which therefore put a strain on my dad. And so I grew up in this context of constant crisis, um, but quickly brushed under the rug with everything else that was going on in life. And we never talked about what was really going on. It wasn't until later that I began to understand like, oh, he has a mental issue. And you're pretty young. I was young. I mean, these were memories in elementary school then later on, when I would get to know Joe better and he would stay for different periods of time, I'm like, why is my brother laying on the couch all day? Like, he's lazy. Like, what is going on? <laughs> he would stay with us for weeks at a time and wouldn't get off the couch. Um, then he would come up other times because um, he lived like two hours away, you know, when he was able to live by himself. He'd come up other times and he'd just be like on crack. <laughs> he'd just be crazy. Like, he'd be wild and positive and grandiose thinking and thinking he can take down mountains and everyone else was stupid and it was wild to see that difference and we didn't even know at this point that he was bipolar mm -hmm. um but just living that was a very weird and tense environment how long did those phases normally 
So for him, it usually was several weeks at a time. So maybe six weeks of a high and six weeks of a low. It's really long. Um, Yeah. So there were, there were longer periods. Um, And again, he wasn't really diagnosed with bipolar disorder until much later. Yeah. They just thought it was just depression and all that. So that was the journey in my youth. Then as I got like high school, I was like, okay, I'm annoyed by this. Like I was frustrated because I saw Joe as being just a complainer and someone who just didn't, um, just didn't just get through stuff. Like he was always down and he was always discouraged and therefore pulling mom down because she was so empathetic and like trying to work with him and trying to love him. And my mom just couldn't really rise above that. So they just kind of commiserated a lot, um, which happens a lot in families I feel like. And so Going through that journey was tough. Then we got into it because when my brother would be on the high, on the bipolar high, he was really mean and arrogant and kind of condescending. Um, and he was always making fun of me and you know saying I didn't do this right or I didn't do that right or he knew something better than I did. And as a high schooler, you can imagine that didn't go off well with me. Right. Um, and so we had a very tense relationship. And I thought he used my mom a lot, like to get what he wanted. I mean, there were periods I remember in high school where my mom would go visit him and like clean his house for him. I'm like, why can't you clean your own house? Mm-hmm. Like, so I was just frustrated in that period of time. Then things switched a little bit when I went to college because I went to college in the same town where he lived. Mm-hmm. And that really changed my relationship with him because I was now the person in an uncomfortable environment and I went to my brother for comfort because he was living a mile away and we used to spend a lot of time together. I was still frustrated with him and I still struggled with it, but that kind of changed our dynamic a little bit. Fast forward, we moved to North Carolina, right? So I do, mom and dad and Joe, we all move. Then it started a really tense, difficult period because we thought Joe will spend a little time living with mom and dad to get on his feet, but it ended up being five years before he got out of the house because he just kept crashing and kept not being able to move forward. He didn't make any friends because he was so socially anxious that he just never left the house. Um, So we watched this and we're moving on with our lives. I'm, you know, I'm now dating someone and like he sees that and um, it it was just hard for him to see everyone moving on, but he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't in a place where he knew anyone and it just never got better. So, you know, this was like 2010, 2011. Um, Then he finally, finally through after some really intense struggles and he had a a period where he was really addicted to alcohol during that period. He actually spent some time in jail because of a DUI, Um, just substance abuse was happening. And he was trying to mask and cover a lot of the things he was feeling. Um, But once he got through that, he actually bought a house, he moved into it, he started doing it. Like, we're like, okay, these things are happening. And then, not you know soon thereafter he started spiraling down and it was the longest like down period we'd ever seen and and he never came back from it where he just could not see hope he could not see any way out of the darkness of the situation and he just always complained of being tired and always complained of not having energy to do anything or to meet people and that just killed him so um going through that season was hard i got married in 2016 and then in July of 2016, he took his life. Yeah. So that's kind of a rapid fire you know, trajectory of that. I could tell you a lot of other things about how my difficult relationship with him 
was kind of restored in a miraculous way, uh, like a year before he took his life. And I praise God for it, um, that I was able to reconcile with him because we were at odds. Like I couldn't even look at him in the eye. Like I was so upset with him. Yeah. Um, but he restored our relationship and I praise God for that now looking back mm-hmm. um, and experiencing that because it's made it a, a sweeter thing to remember him. So, yeah, it sounds like that there's a lot of things people misunderstand about mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, because like what you said about laziness and, and anger and, and thinking that those things came from different places. Um, is there a, is there one thing that you think is the biggest thing that people don't like really understand about people with mental illness? Yeah, I, and I was even thinking as I was saying Joe's stories kind of answers the questions <laughs> a little bit because I misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, who's grown a lot in the last several years, he misunderstood. I think my mom is so empathetic that she kind of couldn't even see that. But for me, yeah, I thought, I think laziness is a thing that is really, a person is mischaracterized or misjudged uh, when they're dealing with mental illness as they're lazy, like, or they're stuck in their own head, which to an extent is true. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the illness is so severe that they just need help. They can't get out of that on right. their own. And so yeah. um, I think laziness is something that, you know, they're mischaracterized as. Um, I think just, you know, selfishness uh, is another thing that, that can be seen wrongly in that, um, weak weakness, um, people mischaracterize that a lot. Um, and I, and I, again, thought all those things about him during that Mm -hmm. time. And it wasn't until after he passed away, he passed away in, in July, 2016, in January of 2017, I experienced my first like big depression and like heavy anxiety season Mm -hmm. and I'd never, you know, little sad circumstances, but like I didn't want to do anything and I, the things I once found joyful, I didn't anymore. And I experienced that for the first time and it was very, very humbling. Yeah. And in that moment, I'm like, ah, this is what he was talking about. And it was very, very humbling in that way. And then I realized all those misconceptions that people feel. It's true. I'm sure you felt pretty differently for him looking back on that mm-hmm. after you, you went through some of it. Absolutely. You know, I, I think differently about him and, and I'm able again to look back with more sweetness and more like, wow, he was, he was trapped. Like he was stuck in some of this and, um, thinking about it, the loneliness that contributes, you know, we were talking a little bit about that, the loneliness that contributes to that. I felt so much worse for what he was experiencing. And I used to judge him for coming to visit mom and dad all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, when my wife's out of town, I want to be with my mom and dad all the time too, or someone because who, who wants to be alone? Like that's not normal necessarily to want to be alone like that. Yeah. You want to be with people. And so I was like, I'm, I feel so bad for all the times. I'm like, Joe, just why don't you want to go to your own house? Well, cause he wants to be with people. So I think, yeah. My eyes weren't open to that till after mm-hmm. I experienced it for the first time. Yeah, that makes total sense. I love the shift there. Um, one thing I love too is how people remember pe- remember those people who they lost. And yeah. a few of my friends do that by taking the day of their significant other's death off every year and they just go to the mountains mm-hmm. and think and remember them which is um, really cool um what what how do you like honor and grieve 
um, your brother? Yeah, that's a great question. I, Summer and I, my wife Summer and I, we have made a commitment. Um, we made that commitment the first birthday um, after he passed away. So we essentially are figuring out actively how to celebrate him at two different times during the year. Mm -hmm. uh, one is his birthday, and then one is the day that he died. Um, and his birthday is January 5th. And so we, um, the first year, we kind of set a pattern and we followed up on that essentially with little minor changes, but we always get together with mom and dad and if my aunt and uncle are around, with Summer and I, and we have Mexican food because that was his favorite. Yeah. Um, and we typically go to the same Mexican restaurant every year because that was like his place. Um, and then we have German chocolate cake because yeah. uh, that was his favorite dessert. And the first year we actually ordered the German chocolate cake and, you know, but it's been, People have not made that recently. It's been hard to find. And so this past year, Summer actually made German chocolate cupcakes for the first time. <laughs> so it might not always look traditional, but we always in some way will have food and dessert for him mm. because he loved to eat. I mean, and he, he knew how to eat some Mexican food and some dessert. So that's something we do every January 5th. Um, and then something that I've kind of inaugurated that first time we continue to do is uh, we take a picture as a family every year and it's usually around the same table um, and it's with mom, dad, and me and we're kind of holding up a picture of him. Mm -hmm. That's kind of special for us. So that's the birthday. Then we also like to really do something special on the day he died, which is July 23rd. Now that one's a little different. It's a little less sweet, obviously, than his birthday. Yeah. Um, and so it's a little more personal. And so in former years, um, sometimes we've gone out and bought shoes in his honor because he was a shoeaholic. Like he always was buying shoes. What kind of shoes? Um, really any kind of shoes, but typically like athletic shoes. Um, he would just go and buy them when he didn't need them. So <laughs> we've done that. Um, the first year on that day, we like sent out white rose petals and just kind of said memories of him. But now it's kind of more personal, just however we want to as individuals in the family. So this past year, I did something new. I'm starting to get into running again. Mm -hmm. So I went out and ran 44 and a half uh, minutes because, you know, that was kind of, you know, how old he'd be at that time. And each minute I would like call out something about him. And that was really special. So I think I want to keep that up. Yeah, I remember I saw that on Facebook and I, I love that. The significance yeah. of days and the numbers. Um, it was really special and I think a lot of people appreciate that and just the, like preserving the memory of, of it is awesome. Yeah. So those are the two special days, I think. Yeah. Thanks for sharing yeah, <laughs> all that about Joe. Um, I have been looking at some stats on suicide recently and during COVID, as everyone knows, pretty much everything got worse and um, the two that kind of shocked me the most are um, the fact that one in 10 Americans considered committing suicide um, during COVID and over 25% of, of adults age 25 to, or sorry, age 18 to 25 um, also contemplated um, suicide. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think those are like huge numbers. If you think about how many people are in America, like 350 million mm -hmm. um, around that. And, um, I was going to ask you, what are some practical things that we can um, tell people um, that are thinking about suicide more as a positive thing lately? Like I've talked to some 
guys recently where it becomes more attractive and that's a a big step um if you let if you let your mind kind of dwell on that yeah and um what are some things we should think about and look out for and um, tell people who are struggling with that yeah it's good practical steps um the first statement i would make for that is uh lies live in the darkness right and they live in isolation so I think the biggest thing that needs to be dealt with if those thoughts are coming uh, is to get out of isolation. Hmm. So whether that looks like physically going to somebody, depending yeah. on the situation, or calling somebody or texting somebody, letting somebody know. Mm -hmm. um, because again, isolation is so bad. Like it, And that's the link to COVID, I feel like, in right. a huge way, is there's all this isolation. So lies are just thriving in the darkness yeah. um, and in that isolation. So. I would say first practical step is reach out to somebody in whatever way that you can. Um, if it's a trusted friend, a pastor, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so once that's done, then you're automatically gonna kind of be lifted up into a conversation. Um, and then just be honest, you know, be as honest as you can with, with that individual or that group or whatever. Um, and then really you're gonna have to do some some heart surgery in the sense of like what what's causing this. I feel like you need to start searching for the root and understanding like when did this begin? Why is it starting? Like I really am learning right now a lot about biblical counseling and getting to the root of things because so often we treat the symptoms or in the analogy like we cut off the branch, mm -hmm. um, but then it grows right back. We need to we need to treat the root. And yeah. so what what has caused it? So after you initially reach out and get it out there and like get out of that isolation then you start to do the hard work of why is that why am i feeling this way like and you need other people maybe to help you see that or realize that yeah i've actually thought about that a lot recently and just reading about trauma and the fact that a lot of times things are so bad we have to treat the symptoms first because mm -hmm. honestly a lot of people are in such bad places where you can't even think about the core issues until you get help with therapy and medication mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. talking to people and let and all that kind of stuff so I, I think that's really important too and just thinking about a lot of times people are in such a dark deep place that they they have to take yeah. a few steps mm -hmm. maybe a lot of steps to get to the core, like the core issues of what's, yeah. what's really going on that's true and you know medicine is god's gift like mm -hmm. it's so helpful um you just need someone that's going to be wise and deliberate in like talking with you about its use and if it's the best use for you in that time. And I do believe that. I mean, I think for a lot of people, there is an actual physical issue going on that's exacerbating, you know, all of the feelings and everything. And if that physical issue is dealt with, um, I just went to a breakout session at this conference that was talking about, it was a medical doctor mm -hmm. saying, you need to rule out physical issues that are yeah. causing this. Like maybe there's a thyroid issue. Maybe there's some type of, you know, thing going on that's undetectable physically. Mm -hmm. And if that's dealt with, sometimes a lot of those things kind of dissipate. And so, yeah, yeah I would say you use a concert of different things. Like yeah. um, if medicine helps you get to the point where you can be calm enough to work through that, then that's what you have to do. But ultimately you want to deal with the heart because the heart is going to be the thing that fuels everything else. How does mental illness skew our, the view of ourselves and the view of the world? Because it clouds um, a lot of people's minds. Yeah. And, and we can't really see clearly while we're in, in it deeply. Yeah. So how does that work? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about that. It goes back to you know the previous question of, of the root and the heart um, because I believe that at the core of depression, anxiety, a lot of these issues is a is an unhealthy view of self, you know, in some way. And I think it's pride and arrogance manifested in certain ways where it's like a, a consuming, like it's always about me and what I'm feeling and how I'm perceiving the world. Um, so there's that side of it. Whether and what's amazing is you think about that often in terms of someone who's arrogant. But it's also prideful on the other side of that to be so self-loathing. It's still self. It's still you're still thinking about wanting other people to affirm you and lift you up and all those things. So both extremes are to be avoided, and it's a healthy view of self that will fuel healthy mental health, I believe. Um, and so recognizing who you are, your identity, and you know, for me, I'm unashamedly you know a believer in Christ, and I believe that that's found in Him and Him alone. So. If I can go to the root of the issue and say, hmm, here's an area where I'm looking at myself wrong, that I'm looking at myself as someone who is condemned, who's, you know, full of this shame. Well, no, I've been rescued and set free by God, you know, through Jesus. And so I don't need to be under the weight of this. It's maybe causing some of the, that. Well, I think it's brokenness. important to say too, like every, every person is blind to themselves, mm -hmm. themselves in some way. Yeah. Um, like none of us can see ourselves clearly, and so, in in that respect, it's it's impossible to see yourself clearly, and so we have to understand ourselves in community with others. Yeah. Um, know who you are, who created you. Mm -hmm. um, it's all so that that's where I, that part to me is super important. Yeah, it goes back to the isolation thing, right? Yeah. Like you mm -hmm. need to have other people speaking into your life and reminding you of these things because you can be so self-deceived. Um, so that's kind of the view of self personally, like that will fuel a really healthy response, I think, in us. But then you mentioned an unhealthy view of the world sometimes, you know, yeah. like self towards the world. I think when we get in these spaces and these mindsets, we think the world is against us mm -hmm. um, and we see them as antagonistic towards us or and again, that is just, a, it's a skewed view because you're seeing everything through your own lens instead of, you know, something my wife and you, my wife and I say all the time is take your eyes off yourself, like lift yourself above the situation right. and try to understand what's going on. And that's been really helpful <laughs> to steer clear of that kind of, oh, the world's against me because it's not true. Right. But it, a lot of times your body, you feel it in the body and in your mind, you feel like you can't get out of it in yeah. any way, and that, that's a lot, a large part of what depression is. Mm -hmm. But um, helping us get through that takes a lot of people around us, and that's why I'm passionate about this um, organization, No Man's Island, because I really want guys to be surrounded by people who can help them on a deep level, and it doesn't have to be all professionals. Like, mm -hmm. key part of that is community. Yeah. It's it's um, church if you go to one. It's counseling therapy, mm -hmm. um, medical doctors, psychi psychiatrists, yeah. um, for like, for a lot of people, it takes a lot of, it takes community first of all, and it takes uh, experts as well as understanding who you are as a person and your value and knowing that. Um, but the question I want to ask you the most, yeah. <laughs> is as a brother who's been through mm -hmm. a ton of stuff mm -hmm. and as a pastor now, 
Um, what do you really want to say to those guys, especially that are thinking about um, suicide as an option? Mm -hmm. And how, how, how do they see themselves in that moment? And how, how can they um, reframe that? Yeah, as a brother first, you know, going through this with my family, I tell people I will never be the same because of what happened. So the message I would have is the, the decisions that you make are not in a vacuum. They impact people in a very, very severe way. Um, and one of the first piercing thoughts that I had after my brother took his life was, did he even think about me? Like, did he even think about mom? Like what, what was going through his head? Um, I even remember going through his house afterwards and be like, did he not write a note? Like, did he not say anything? Like, I so badly wanted to know his words. Mm -hmm. Like, what did he, what was he thinking? So that's my, my biggest thought would be what you do impacts, you know, those around you, especially your family. Mm -hmm. Um, and so just think about others and, and think about your family, you know, those that are closest to you and how, how you are so meaningful in their lives and, um, they would never be the same you know, if you made a decision like that, I think that's a really important thing to consider. Okay. Um, Cause again, it also works to kind of take your eyes off of you and think about those that are around yeah. you. Um, so as a brother, that's something that I've, you know, really felt and considered. Yeah. It changes things for forever. Yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah the, the whole fabric of our family has changed. Um, because of my brother's decision, like, I don't have two brothers, you know, I have one right. brother. It's, it's just all the little things where I used to say I have two, now I have to explain, you know, myself and, you know, and every holiday, every holiday is different. It, it has a singe of, of guilt, or not guilt, a singe of, you know, sadness and all of that to it. And um, But it's also given me a lot of platforms, so I'm grateful for it. But I would say as a brother, like, it, it wrecks a family. It absolutely destroys it. And by God's grace, we're building back up and we're, we're growing. But... Um, that's that would be my counsel as a brother. Mm -hmm. um, as a pastor, I think that this is rampant. I mean, you read some stats. Um, you know, based on this counseling conference I just went to, you know, with like two thousand other counselors, that's was talked about a lot. And I went to a breakout on you know reframing depression and talking about that and um, where medicine fits and where it doesn't fit and all of that. And went to a one on anxiety and like I was trying to understand because especially with guys, which is why I'm so grateful for you, Matt, and what you're doing is it's not talked about. Um, it's pushed under the rug. It's just masked with substances or whatever else. And so um, as a pastor, I would say recognize that really the chief reason, the chief reason for these issues, particularly leading towards suicide, is hopelessness. Yeah. Right. That to me, that is always the bottom layer is a person takes their life because they don't see hope. Yeah. Hope is the core. And so my counsel as a pastor would be, what are you putting your hope in? Where's your hope? Because if your hope is in something that will fail you, then you don't have a, a firm foundation to stand on. Mm -hmm. But if your hope is found in something that is, is not shaken, and I believe, you know, in my role and my relationship with the Lord, it is unshakable. The hope that I have in him um, and I know where I'm going and how I'm getting there and, and that's just so comforting that that holds me up even in my darkest moments. And I've had some dark moments, um, very dark and so as a pastor I would say know your hope and if your hope is in a firm foundation then that that in itself will bring you hope. Yeah, I mean, That's huge. I think I too when I, 
want guys to really understand that um, one, what we do matters, and two, God cares about what we do. Um, but three, most importantly, is that um, God loves us and pursues us. Mm-hmm. And that means he created us um, and has Im- immeasurable value that he's assigned to us. And like, I want the guy struggling to understand that part of it. And even if you f- like, you feel like no one else cares, mm-hmm. which is usually you almost always a lie anyways, um, God cares more than, than you know. And absolutely. Um, someone is always there um, waiting to help help mm-hmm. out. And mm-hmm. um, I tell people that just focus on making the next step and reaching out to a friend, a counselor, a pastor. And um, if you reach out to a friend and it, it, he, it doesn't go well, like don't give up, like reach out to <laughs> the next friend. Um, don't take too much meaning from things that don't, go perfectly like a lot of guys don't a lot just a lot of guys don't understand what's happening and so just keep keep going and keep like keep trying Mm -hmm. um go to the next step and know who you know you have to believe who you are and that you're valuable um, regardless of like what we're feeling yeah i mean i think that's a core issue you're talking about people being made in the image of god Mm -hmm. and so Suicide is essentially murdering that image, you know, like self-murder. I mean, that's another way to think about it. The image is so valuable that the Lord will protect you, and that's why he preserves you your whole life, because that image is so important. Um, And so, yeah, just recognizing that you have a faithful friend um, in God who will never leave you, that's what's going to hold you, you know, in those moments where where things seem really dark. But um, I just want to encourage everyone that it's a real issue. Like I just, for so many years, again, I had misconceptions. My wife who has none of the propensities that I do, she's the most joyful, happy person ever. I'm more introspective and prone to this stuff. She's had to learn. Um, and she was a little harsh with me at first because she's like, get over it. Same feelings I had. She kind of played onto me and I've had to be like my brother in saying, stop, like I'm really struggling here. I need your help. And so, um, you're right. There are people in our lives that really do want to help us. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thanks, Ryan, so much for sharing your story Absolutely. and giving us your words of wisdom. Yes, Appreciate sir. it. Always great to see you. Yeah. Good <laughs> spend time with you.